so other, as our other campuses, Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley, and then our other two venues on this campus, the chapel and uh, venue across campus, join us uh, for our time in the Word. Let's all bow together as one congregation and ask God's blessing upon what's going to happen next. Father, uh, there are some of us who have come here today, or at one of our campuses and venues, uh, and we've come with an expectancy. We have needs, we have desires, uh, we need you and want you to do something. And my prayer today, for those of us who have come expecting, is that you would surprise us with joy, and that that joy might be found in yourself. God, there's others of us who have come here today uh, out of duty and obligation. It's the thing to do, it's church, it's something that's a part of our routine. And though that's not bad, per se, Father, I pray that for those of us in that camp, that you might shake us today and make us expecting, make us thirsty for a deeper walk with you, a deeper uh, knowledge of you, even, Lord, a deeper experience of you. Would you draw us close, we pray. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church says together, amen. So back in my uh, very first church that I pastored in Detroit, Michigan, there was a very successful businessman who was also a, a faithful churchgoer. Uh, he had a wonderful wife, a few sweet children, a nice house in Gross Point, which is a nice suburb of Detroit, and he was a very friendly guy, was involved in his small group at church, was generous with his money, and seemed like just a great guy. And one day I was in the car with her parents. They were missionaries that were visiting Detroit, their kids and grandkids. And Kim and I were in the back seat, picture that, and this missionary couple was in the front seat. And at one point, just making small talk, I said to them from the back seat, I said, boy, you must be proud of your kids. I mean, they seem to be doing great. And that son-in-law of yours, boy, is he a godly man. And I'll never forget what happened next. She gave a quick look to her husband. He gave a quick look to her. And then she craned her neck and looked at me right in the eye and said two words. She said, define godly. Yeah, that was my response too. I didn't know what to say. And she was angry and she's a missionary and an older lady. And by the tone in her voice, I knew that I had stepped into something that I wanted to get out of very quickly. But I was not going to. We had to spend the rest of the evening with them. And I would come to learn the rest of the story. I learned that their daughter was overwhelmed at home with all the kids. She had some health problems on top of that. And she was depressed. And he was working all the time traveling, going to nice restaurants every night, 70, 80-hour work weeks. And when he was home, they didn't perceive him as very sensitive or patient with her struggles. And so in their minds, all the church going, all the Bible studies, all the tithing, all the smiles would not make up for what these missionary slash parents saw as a terribly poor husband and father. Define godly. I'll never forget her saying that to me. And it's actually a really good statement. Uh, you see, Christians today, and many of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen this happen. We throw around this term godly or godliness a lot. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, we use it to describe somebody. We say, boy, like I did, that person is godly. Or we describe their actions as godly. Or we, we 
We say that they demonstrated godliness in their lives. And then we even use its, its opposite. We say that something or someone is ungodly. I've heard Christians say that before. Uh, but we rarely define the term, define godly. It was actually a great challenge. Troy talked about it earlier that in our creative arts meeting this week, there's about 17 people in that meeting because we have, you know, 11 services every weekend and different worship pastors. And I knew I was going to be speaking on godliness. And so I said to them what this lady said to me. I said, give me a one sentence definition of godliness. And Troy's the only one who responded with, uh, you know, and, and it's hard. I, I wouldn't put you on the spot, but it's not an easy term uh, to define it. But that's what we're going to do today. And here's why. We've been in a series here at Scottsdale Bible called Fall Proof. Fall Proof. Uh, we're taking a look at eight things found in the Bible, specifically in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Eight things that build one upon the other. Things that the Bible says, and this is the direct promise, can keep you from falling if we dare to apply these things to our lives. And so far, we've looked at five of the eight things. So let's review them very quickly by reading the passage leading up to the sixth thing we're looking at today. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 6. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with, say it with me, godliness. Say it one more time, godliness. It makes some of you sweat just to say the word, doesn't it? <laughs> And yet there it is in the list of things that we need to build a fall-proof kind of faith. Define godly. So let's do so right now. This is your main point today. This is our definition of godliness. It includes a negative and a positive. And it's this, that godliness is not being like God. Rather, it is revering and relating to God. Man, I know this sounds so simple, but if you can latch on to this, and we're going to do a deep dive in this today, you're going to get somewhere with this thing called godliness. Godliness is not being like God. It is revering and relating to God. Now, let's talk about this a bit here. Many Christians today, and I've been an observer of Christians for 36 years now, many Christians today seem to think that godliness is defined as being like God. So we demonstrate certain traits that are traits that Jesus or the Father might have. And because we have them, we call ourselves or call other people godly. And when you listen really closely to people who define godliness this way, these are usually moral traits like righteousness, goodness, holiness, obedience, and the like. Or they even get really micro on us and talk about things like abstinence from certain things or not using bad language or being faithful to your spouse or being involved in church or being generous with your money or whatever it might be. And they link these things to godliness. So the moral ones among us are called godly. we got this list of moral traits. We measure everything and everybody by these things. And if they meet our list, they're godly. And if they don't meet our list, then they are <laughs> not so godly in our minds. And I see Christians do this all the time. It's how most, if not all Christians, tend to define or understand godliness. Moral qualities that are linked to being like God. And here's what you need to know. 
This is an utterly wrong and false definition of godliness, at least by biblical standards. Don't get me wrong. As we're going to see in just a minute here, godliness can and does lead to certain traits. And some of those traits are going to be moral traits, things like righteousness and goodness. But this is a vastly different thing from defining godliness that way. Godliness is going to stand on its own with its own definition, its own understanding. And though it might lead to certain things, those things are not necessarily that which defines it. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if, if godliness was a synonym for righteousness, then why would we need the term godly? I mean, godliness has to mean more than just a few moral qualities that it might result in. There has to be more substance and grit to it than that. So once again, godliness is not being like God. It is revering and relating to God. Let's do a deep dive on that second half. The word for godliness in the New Testament is the Greek word eusebia. I want you guys to say that with me because it's easy to say. Eusebia. One more time. Eusebia. And this word is translated in your Bibles, no matter what translation you might have, as either godliness, reverence, or even sometimes religion. It's a fascinating word. It was used by the Greek culture way before the New Testament was written, and it was the actual Greek word for religion. It was used by the Greeks to describe someone who believed in a deity and had an awe or reverence or respect for this deity. Homer, you guys remember him uh, who wrote those mythical stories about Zeus and Apollos and all the Greek gods? Homer used this word Eusebia to describe the people who believed in and had an awe for the Greek gods. The original root of this word literally means to shrink from, that idea of the fear of God, the reverence of God. And so in the Greek culture, if you were described as Eusebia, it was simply their way of saying you're religious. You guys do that today. You see somebody or maybe your neighbor sees you and says, that dude is awfully religious. In the Greek culture, it would be them saying that dude is awfully Eusebia. And interestingly, the New Testament, on a couple of rare occasions, would use this word in this way, simply to describe somebody who was not Jewish or somebody who was not even Christian, but just downright religious. Look at Acts chapter 10, you'll see what I mean. In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it's describing this guy named Cornelius, who wasn't a Jew, who wasn't a Christian, Look at how they describe him. It says at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout, Eusebia, and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And then if you were to read on in this passage, it would talk about how Cornelius would soon become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But this is the description before any of that happened. That's really important that you see that. It's a religious dude in the Bible who has yet to find relationship with the living God. And then it's done again in Acts 17. Uh, Paul is speaking in Athens before the Greek philosophers. And it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, Greek word Eusebia, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, Eusebia, and this is what I'm going to now proclaim to you. So again, once again, as you need to see, it's a word used to describe, even in the New Testament, this fear or awe of deity, a religious person. This is what godliness, Eusebia, meant to the Greeks in Jesus' day. And so it's here when the New Testament would hijack this word that things begin to heat up and take off. Because what the New Testament writers would do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that they would make a subtle and powerful change to how this word would be used and applied to our lives. Let me just show it to you in black and white. So we've already established that the Greeks used this word eusebia, translated godliness, to describe religion or religious person. But in the New Testament, aside from those two verses that we just looked at and all the other 20 occurrences of Eusebia, now watch this, they would hijack this word and use it to describe somebody who had a relationship with the living God. And it was very different than somebody who was just religious. And they would tie that relationship to certain things, which we'll see in just a second here. And when they did that, this was what we, call, what we might call biblical or Christian eusebia or godliness, which would become very different than how their culture used the word. As I mentioned a second ago, there's 22 occurrences of this word Eusebia in the New Testament. I looked at all of them this week, and I, two of them I just showed you now. But when you read all the others, and I'm not going to bore you with that, when you read all the others, you start to see a pattern of what the New Testament writers did with this word. Let me just show you three instances, and I think you'll get it. In Titus 1, verses 1 verse 1, where this word Eusebia appears, look at what Paul, what Paul does with this. He says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with, say it again with me, godliness. Now that's interesting here. Are you, are you grabbing this? Uh, Paul is using this word eusebia, godliness here, but he builds it upon a true knowledge, a knowledge of the truth, and a faith in Jesus Christ as those whom God has chosen. It's fascinating. This idea of Eusebia is now built upon a faith in Jesus and a knowledge of the truth. What truth? The truth that comes from the Bible. And so this Greek word is morphing right in front of us. Do you see this? To go from a description of a religious person within that culture to somebody who now has a relationship built upon Jesus and his truth. If you don't believe me, check out this one, 1 Timothy 3.16. This is really rich. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Fascinating phrase. And you, you ask, well, what's the mystery of godliness? Well, he tells us. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Whoa! So here, godliness is being defined and built upon those who believe in Jesus as the incarnation of God, manifested in the flesh, proven by the Holy Spirit, witnessed by a lot of people, including all of heaven, told to the entire world, and even believed by many, and then ascended into heaven where we await his return. 
So now Eusebia becomes Trinitarian in nature. Please see that. It involves the Holy Spirit. It involves Jesus the Son. It involves God the Father. A richness, a texture, a grit is being added to this understanding. And then one last thing, and we'll move on from here. One last verse, because we got to hammer this thing home. We're going to apply this in just a minute here. If anyone, in 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with, here it is again, godliness. So, so here, godliness, once again, is built upon the words of Jesus and doctrine that comes from the truth of God. And so it's a very different definition. Are you starting to see? I love how the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which traces this word Eusebia through hundreds of years of formation from the Greek world to the New Testament, even to what we call the, the, the second and third century church and how they used it. Look at what they say. This is really wild. They say Christian Eusebia is not moralistic. Boy, could they be more direct? For it is rooted in the Christ event. It is not just outward worship, nor a mere concept of God, nor a virtue, nor an ideal. True Eusebia, godliness, is born of faith and covers honoring God as both creator and redeemer. Don't miss this, guys. The New Testament would literally explode this word. It would add a level of depth to it to now go from mere religion to a life-giving transformative relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ who redeemed us. A relationship built upon truth and faith. In short, this word is used by the New Testament, I just love this, to take us on a journey, each and every one of us, from religion to relationship. That's the power of this idea of godliness. You know, this week has been a uh, kind of special week for me. Uh, yesterday was my spiritual birthday. Uh, yesterday was March 11th, 2017. And on March 11th, uh, 1981, I accepted Christ as my Savior. And here's what you need to know about that day. On that day, I went from religion to relationship. I didn't know it at the time. I had no clue what was happening at the time. It was all in God's hands. But it was a profound experience for me to, at the age of 17, to go from a guy who was semi-religious, as all Americans are, at least compared to, you know, like other places of the world, to a true relationship with God. Many of you know my story. I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, called Chagrin Falls. And, and, and it's wild. Our, my town is smaller than this church. You know, my, my, my town is 5,000 people, and everybody knows everybody. And it was a beautiful, quaint Norman Rockwell town about a half an hour east of Cleveland, Ohio. And I grew up just like most kids do. I did sports. I chased girls. I got into trouble, not felony trouble, just misdemeanor trouble and things like that. And, and, and I had dinner five nights a week with my parents, and we took family vacations. And here's your typical middle-class upbringing. And we saw ourselves as fairly religious. I mean, we went to church regularly every Christmas and Easter. We were there. And if you had asked me, am I a Christian, I would have looked at you and said, well, I'm not a Turk. I mean, so obviously, I'm, I mean, I must be a Christian. I mean, you know, and, and, and because I was a semi-religious, I was a good person. I was fairly moral. At least I was more moral than half my graduating class, you know. And, and, and I would have saw myself as 
fairly self-satisfied and somewhat religious. But you know, God is so good, he knew that in all my religiosity, I didn't have a relationship with him. And I would have probably been honest about that. If people would have said to me, describe God, I would have given Troy's response to godliness. Uh, you know, well, I, mean, I would have said my prayer that we always said before every meal when I was growing up, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for this food, amen. And I would have described God that way. But I didn't know him, not at all. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't understand anything really about God or his truth or anything like that. I didn't have a relationship with him. I'd throw up a few prayers every now and then, but it wasn't a living relationship. You know, Jesus described our Christian lives as this, uh, springs of living water flowing from our very souls. I would not have described it that way at all when I was religious. And, and then in March of 1981, I, well, before that, I began just thirsting for more. Has that ever happened to you? I was just thirsting for more. I, I, I was young and dumb, but I knew enough to know that if this is it, this is awfully disappointing. And I started to seek out just a bit more of what it might mean to truly know God and be right with him. Here's what's happening. I didn't even know it. I was bothered by my sin. I've taught you guys the gospel in four words before. The gospel is not hard to understand. The gospel in four words is this, God, sin, Christ, and you. So the gospel simply says that God is real and that he loves you and made you and he, he's the, he desires to be in relationship with you. But sin, which we all have, separates us from God. And here's what I knew at 17 without knowing any of the Bible. I had 17 years of empirical experience to back that one up. I knew that I was sinful. I knew that I did things that were wrong. Again, I wasn't in jail. I wasn't an ax murderer or anything like that. But I knew that I was sinful. And I felt bad about it. I mean, you feel bad about your sin unless you are what psychologists call a sociopath. I mean, all of us are going to feel bad when we sin. And I did. And it's one thing to say to my old man, I'm sorry I did what I did, or my mom. But I knew I was in trouble with God. I just knew that intuitively. I knew that if God was just, that if God was holy, if God was really good, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for this food, amen. I knew if that was true, then somehow I was in a little bit of trouble with him because I knew my life didn't measure up. And, and so God sinned, and I started a journey to seek out what might be the answer, and I found it, or better yet, he found me. Because somebody simply explained to me this. They, they said to go from religion to relationship, you need to understand Jesus. You need to understand that God does love you and sin separates you, but that's why Jesus came as the incarnate Son of God to live a perfect life among us to show us that what that looks like, even though we can't do it, and then to die as a substitute for our sins so that we might be forgiven. But it's God, sin, Christ, and then the very last part I had never done, and what's that part? You. The Bible says you need to believe. You need to trust in him. You need to take that step of faith. And on March 11th, 1981, when somebody finally explained this to me in clear, logical language, I understood it. And I said, well, that makes a lot more sense than religion. That makes a lot more sense than me just trying to do my best, going to church every Christmas and Easter, being a fairly good egg, all the other things that I was taught in my hometown. I can now have a relationship with the living God. And it's hard to explain to some of you who haven't experienced that yet, but the best way I can explain it, and this dates me when I give this illustration, is that my spiritual life went from black and white to technicolor. 
Some of you are younger, have no idea what black and white means because you've never lived in a world of black and white. But our very first TV, my very first computer monitor, uh, most of the first, my very first PDA were all black and white. Now everything's in color. But if you ever experience black and white and then go to color, it's a massive difference, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge game changer. And I would describe going from religion to relationship very similar to that. That, that, that the religious world was just kind of black and white. I, I really wasn't connected with God. It's religion. It's man-made. It's all our attempts to try to understand and find God, and they're not very good. But, but this relationship with God, this true Eusebia, is about him reaching out to us in Jesus and us responding in faith. And so the obvious question that I want us to wrap up with today is where are you? when it comes to this journey from what I'm gonna call popular cultural Eusebia, American religion, to relational Eusebia, what the Bible talks about built upon the truth of who God is and what it means to come to him in true relationship through Christ. Where are you? If you and I were having a cup of coffee in your favorite spot today, Cactus Mountain Valley venue, a chapel, if you and I were having a cup of coffee today, but what would you say to me about where you are on this journey that God wants us all to go on from religion to relationship? And here's the real kicker. If you notice, that this does involve salvation, but, but I'm not even asking you the question. Now, now, please hear this. I'm not necessarily asking you the question, are you saved? Because though there are some of you that need to make a decision to go from religion to relationship in order to experience the salvation of Christ for the very first time, and we'll talk about it in a second, here's where it gets really dicey. There are people who have made a decision in the past to accept Christ, but they never really in their experience went from religion to relationship. I call it fire insurance. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you've ever read it. They know enough, as the Bible says, to narrowly escape the flames, but they're really not firing anywhere near on eight cylinders in relationship with God because they've never understood what it really means to follow him. So though I am concerned today in part about salvation, I'm more concerned, just use these terms, going from religion to relationship and there are some of you here today that have been sitting in your pew or your seat for years, maybe even a decade, and, and you like me, and you like what I say, and you like the music, and you like some people here, but here's what you need to know. Somebody once said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? You go to McDonald's to eat hamburgers, and you go to church to digest a relationship with Jesus Christ. And everything else is gravy. Everything else is that cherry on top of the cake. And there's many of us here today, not many of us, there's some of us here today that I fear are really good religious people. Maybe now my prayer will make sense earlier. When I prayed that for those of us who came here today out of duty and obligation, because boy, are you ever disciplined. I pray God might shake us up. And my only question for you today is have you gone from religion to relationship in your understanding of Jesus? And you're saying, well, how will I know? <laughs> well, let's do one last thing and then we're gonna end on, on a glorious note here. Um, here's your take home point, And that is that godliness, true Christian Eusebia, results 
in profound transformation. So the way that you know whether or not you've gone from religion to relationship, and I don't mean to be too hard on you, is that your life changes and you see it, other people see it. And I'm not talking about changing just on a moral level, but let's look at what the Bible says about this transformation. I, I trace this word, again, Eusebia, godly, through all its New Testament context, and let's look at some of the results that the Bible directly says happens when you have Christian Eusebia. Here's the first one, it's 1 Timothy 2. It says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, even for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, Eusebia, and dignified in all ways. So what this passage is telling us here is that if you have truly gone from religion to relationship, you're gonna have answered prayer in your life. You will have times when you have made supplications, thanksgivings, prayers to God, and you have seen the obvious movement of God in your life. And some of you never have. Some of you can't point to the last time God showed up in your experience. And I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, maybe you need to go from religion to relationship. Maybe you need to say to God, I'm tired of playing the game. I want to know you, as Paul says, and the power of your resurrection to somehow share in your sufferings and even in your life. I want to see answered prayer in this world. And then notice a second Result of, of godliness in our lives. 1 Timothy 4.8, I love this passage because it frees me up to not have to go to my trainer. It says, for while bodily training is of some value, <laughs> I looked up that Greek phrase, some value. You know what it means? Say it with me, some value. Like not a lot, so that's good. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for life to come. Focus on this word promise. See, when you're godly, you start to experience God's promises in your life and the value of them both now and for all of eternity. Then notice a third result of godliness. This one's really challenging. 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, Eusebia, from temptation. See, some of you are here today going, you know what, I, I really don't have any victory over sin. I mean, I got areas in my life where I'm disciplined. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but that's just in your own strength. There's areas of your life that you have never had victory over. Maybe only you and God know them. You've been after them for years. You've not had victory over temptation. Well, here's, I don't mean to, again, pop your bubble. What the Bible says is that if you understand godliness, if you've drawn close to him, if you've gone from religion to relationship, you will have victory over temptation. Maybe not over everyone, but you will have times where you can easily point to your life and say, I got victory there. And it's God's victory because I'm close to him. And then one last result here. And this one's really, I, this one's going to seem like such a downer, but I don't think it is. It's just challenging. Second Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly Eusebia life in Christ will be, <laughs> say this word with me, Persecuted. You don't like that one, do you? What does that mean? It simply means this, and this is where it's really positive, at least for me, is that the godly ones among us are in the battle. You're not on the sidelines. You're not buying a Coke while everybody else is playing the game. You're not sitting in the bleachers. If you are godly, 
If you've gone from religion to relationship, here's my encouragement to you, Christian. You're in the game and you're on the field and you're getting beat up and you're bruised and you're battered. And there's times where you look at the coach and say, I want out, I need a break. And he says, hang in there. But at the very least, you know you're in the battle. And it's hard and it's difficult because you feel like a fish out of water in this crazy culture of ours. And there's times where your family doesn't understand you. Your kids think you're nuts. You don't know what's going on, but you know that you're in that sweet spot with him. And it's difficult, but you're in the game. You're in the battle. Somebody wants to find sanctification this way for me. He said, it's a God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. And if you are godly here today, if you're close to him, you're in the game. And though you're persecuted and beat up at times, I love how the psalmist says it, there's weeping in the night, but there's joy in the morning. Add it all up, folks. Godliness, this journey from religion to relationship, truly leads us home. God is now smack dab in the middle of your life, complete with answered prayer, his obvious movement, victory over temptation, all as you engage in the battle every single day. So here's how I want us to end our service today. We got about 13 or so minutes left and we've left plenty of time for what we're about to do. And here's what we're gonna do here at Shea Worship Center and then we're gonna release the campuses and venues to have their own time of this. It's time for some of us to go from religion to relationship. And you're saying, how? It's simply a decision you make. It's an understanding in your mind that you now have, every one of you now have it, we've just looked at it, it's not complicated, in which you're now ready to make a decision to say, God, I'm tired of fooling around. I'm tired of being religious. That's just exhausting. But what I want is a true life-giving relationship with your son Christ. And again, for some of you, this will be for the very first time. We call it salvation. For others of you, though, uh, it, it will be kind of what Titus calls a renewal by the Holy Spirit, a time where you've slipped back into religion and it's time now to come back into relationship. It's the prodigal coming home. The prodigal was always a son. <laughs> it's just that he wandered and now it was time to come home. So, so we're gonna to, to allow or call each of us to make that decision today and we're gonna do it through prayer. So in just a minute, I'm gonna pray and then here at Shea, we're gonna sing a song and we're gonna release the uh, other campuses to to do this with uh, their own communities there. But uh, after I pray, we're gonna sing a song here at Shea. And uh, during that song, we don't do this very often, but I think this is very, very important for us. For any of you that wanna go from religion to relationship, now don't miss this. I want you to get up out of your seat during that song. I want you to walk down front here to be with me, your pastor. I'm gonna be right here with you. And when the song is done, for those of you who come down, we're going to pray together. You know, one of the neatest things about you being made in the image of God is that you are body, soul, and spirit. And many times God wants our body, soul, and spirit to be in unison. So it's a wonderful thing many times to bodily get up, walk somewhere <laughs> with God, and then park yourself for a time of commitment and prayer. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do today, that if you are ready to go from this black and white world of religion, to a relationship with the living God. As we're singing this song, come down front here, be with me, have the courage and the fortitude of your own life to say, I'm in. 
And then I will pray with each of us that comes down here. And then we'll do that at other campuses with their pastors there as well. Okay? So let's pray right now. And uh, when I get done praying here, we're going to sing here. That's your cue to come down. And then uh, Rick and the other pastors are going to lead their times together with the other campuses and venues. Father, I believe that this is a very holy moment in this place and at at our other campuses and venues. It's a very sacred moment. It's a moment, God, where we as a church and as individuals get to make a decision that I believe will affect the rest of our lives. It'll be a line in the sand. It'll be a date that we remember, just like I remember March 11th, 1981, where we get to go from messing around and dabbling in the world's form of spirituality to finally coming home to you in relationship through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as you have been preparing hearts and minds for days, weeks, months, even years leading up to this point, that, God, if you're impressing upon somebody's mind and heart to come forward, that they would not be shy. May they not miss this opportunity, but between you and them, may they respond. And may they make the decision today to go to the direction you want them to, which is relationship with you. So, Father, be honored with this time that we're going to have right now. May you be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we say together as a church, 